pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we ask this morning that as we look at your word, that you would direct our steps, that you would speak to us. We thank you that you are a speaking God. And we pray that into our hearts you would bring revelation and knowledge of who you are. Amen. Uh, my message really falls very much in line of what we've sang through our songs, you know, about following Jesus, um, the message shared by Sam that we serve a living God. And we've, we've kind of done a bit of a transition in the last few times that I've preached. We've looked at the power of prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. I know there are lots of formal types of prayer and all, you, and you can use written prayers and whatever, but the real power of prayer is that we're communing with the living God. Think about that for a moment. You have access to God. You have access to speak directly to him. You know, there are lots of things I don't like in my community. I'm... I'm talking to the police at the moment with some issues that are ongoing in my community. And I often think, I wish I had a, a greater voice into MPs or ever, but sometimes trying to get through in those contexts is almost impossible. But Jesus is available any time that you choose to spend time with him. We've also spoken about Holy Spirit baptism, about the power that we are given when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, and this was Jesus, you know, Jesus said many things, but there were few things that he warned people about. And one of his warnings was, do not leave the city until you've been endued with power from on high. And there's a real importance that we understand that we need to be clothed with power from on high. Now, I want to expand this a little bit, and this morning's, uh, the title of this morning's message is The Power of a Connected Life. It's really important that we see that what God offers us is a connection. That there is, you know, we have this amazing book, and I love this book, and I would encourage you to do what Natalie read this morning, memorize. I memorize scripture every day. Yeah, I have verses from the Bible that I go through, memorize. The key to memorization is not how many new verses you do, but how many old verses you review. And so I spend time every day going through what have I learned, and I keep going through those verses. Now, I love this book, but there is a danger that this book becomes the, the, the totality of our Christianity. But this book is not God. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. It's Father, Son, and Holy, uh, Holy Spirit. What am I saying by that? That if this doesn't lead me into my personal relationship with Jesus, then something is wrong. The Muslims have the Quran, which is a book. Yeah. If you go to India, um, Hindus, do they have, a, they have scriptures as well, don't they? Shiva and all those. Bhagavad Gita, there we go. Talk to the Indian lady. <laughs> Most religions 
have a book. But what they don't have is a personal living relationship with God. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because I think there is a real danger that we get into a rule by rule, line by line, and we don't ever get to know Jesus. And so this morning, I want to talk about a, a connected life, not a life of following rules. And I know growing up, and many of you may do, that church sometimes felt it was don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that. And there was a whole load of rules, but there never seemed to be a payoff. So what's the difference between a connected life and a life of rules? A life of rules just seeks to obey what has been said or written, but it doesn't necessarily establish any form of relationship. You know, we follow every day all the rules that the government throws at us, but that doesn't mean we have a relationship with our government. We're just obeying rules. There is no personal connection. A connected life, on the other hand, focuses primarily on relationship. The important part is that we have a relationship. Now, that will undoubtedly include obeying rules, but the rules are in the context of building a relationship. Um, last month, uh, I took two weeks off. My summer holiday was interrupted by something, so I was back at work, so I took two weeks off. And one week was with the kids at school, and the other week was with the kids on holiday. So in the first week, I got time to spend with my wife. And so we went out, and we had a meal together, and we sat down, and we thought, you know what? The last time we did this on our own was six years ago. So we made a decision, we're going to do this more often. Now, we created a rule. But the rule was created in the context of the relationship. Can you imagine just having a rule, you must have a meal together every month on your own and following that religiously without actually engaging in the relationship and building the relationship? It would prove fruitless. Here's a scary thought. It is entirely possible to be a churchgoer who obeys biblical rules but does not know God. That scares me, that thought. That we can come. And you know, sometimes where churches have distinct rules and distinct liturgy, people think that's it. Although obedience is good and it's proper, it doesn't necessarily lead to relationship. The Pharisees in the New Testament were exemplary in obeying the rules, but they lacked in their relationship with God. Now, the reason I feel God's given me this message is we don't want to go into that same error. All relationships have rules, but what is the point of rules if there is no relationship? Perhaps that's why people leave the church. They come and they're expected to adhere to this and be like that and, and do the other and etc. But we don't seem to connect them into a relationship with Jesus. Now, what do I mean when I talk about relationship? I'm talking about a two-way, mutually beneficial connection. Yeah. 
I love my relationship with my wife. It is not one-sided. We both sometimes shout at each other. No, no, it's, you know, we love one, I, I, I love that. And you know what I love? After 14 years of marriage, our relationship is growing and it's better. We had a bit of a knocky start at the beginning and there were some issues here or there, but as time has gone on, it's got better and better and better. It's like kind of wine. The longer you leave it, the better it is. It's a mutually beneficial connection. Did you know that God benefits from his relationship with you? Why? He enjoys it. You know, God isn't, pardon me for saying this, Ben, isn't the teacher that says, oh, I've got to go into class now. That's not God. He's not going, oh, it's Simon again. That's not what he's like. He's saying, yeah, come on. I'm here. I want to talk to you. I want to hear. How are things going with you? Isn't it great to sit down with someone who's actually interested in you? How are things going? How's that issue? How's that problem? That is the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. In fact, I would go as far as to say the purpose of us being created was for the purpose of a relationship with God. God didn't make something and then just say, well, I'm done with that now, I'm moving on, you guys just go and do your own thing. No, no, no. He made us for the distinct purpose that he wanted to relate to us. He wants a relationship. We see it in people in the Bible. One of my favorite characters, I've probably mentioned this so many times, is Enoch. And the reason I love Enoch is we never know what he did. But what we do know is that he walked with God for 300 years and that walked with God as a metaphor, metaphor for he had a relationship with God. And in fact, his relationship with God was so good that God says, you know what, I'm going to take you up to heaven and he never saw death. When I was younger, I was told the story that Enoch walked with God for 300 years, and after 300 years he'd walked so far, God said, my house is closer, come and stay with me. But it was a relationship. And we don't read here that Enoch was perfect and that he built a big city or this. I know there's some other biblical stuff, extra biblical stuff that will tell you about some of that. But in our scripture, it says he walked with God. And we can do that. We can walk with God in a connected life. In the Old Testament, it becomes really clear that God invests in those who come into relationship with him. We see it in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We see it in their lives. And it also explains the rise and fall of kings. If you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you will see that this was a good king and that was a bad king. This was a good king, that was a bad king. Actually, it's this was a good king, that was a bad 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 king. This was a good king, that was a bad king. It kind of goes like that. But the kings that were good, they were all measured by their relationship to God. That was the measurement that was given. They may have been very great secular kings that achieved a great deal, but in the Bible they are termed good or bad in terms of how they connected with God. And we see one of the, the, the greatest kings who ever lived was Josiah. 
It says in the Bible about Josiah, there was not any other king who gave his heart to so completely following God, there was no king like him. Wow. He wanted the relationship. When we move to the New Testament, we see a similar picture. Jesus chose 12, and what did he say to them? Here's a book. No, he didn't. He said, follow me. Follow me is an invitation to a relationship. He didn't say, obey a bunch of rules. He said, guys, come to me and get to know me. When you follow through what Jesus said, it goes like this. He said, come and see. The first disciples, they said, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. There was an invitation to come and see. Our Sunday service is a come and see for people. Come in and see what we do. See if you sense God's presence here. If you hear God speaking to you through what we do in activity, it's a come and see. But that come and see then changed to follow me. In Matthew 4.19 it says, He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now I, I could go off on a tangent, but suffice to say, when Jesus says to you, follow me, there is a purpose. There is a purpose in relationship, but there's also a purpose in calling. I will make you. I wonder what Jesus wants to make you. And then the follow me, right towards the end of Jesus' life, became this, abide in me. He starts off, come and see, then he says, why don't you follow me? And then he says, abide in me. I want to read this section of scripture because it's so powerful. John 15, verse 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There are stages in a journey that Jesus takes us on. From coming to see, to following him, to saying, I'm going to live in you. I'm going to abide in you. It's a journey that we go on. 
The come and see is, hey, let's have a meal, let's have a coffee. You can do that with your friends, with your family, people that you meet. Let's sit down, let's have a chat over a cup of coffee. Follow me is more, hey, let's get to know one another. I'll come round your house for a meal, you come round mine for a meal, and we'll start to build a relationship. Abide in me is the most intense. It's a marriage covenant. Abide in me in the scriptures is seen as a marriage covenant. In fact, the, the idea of marriage is a picture that we see through the Old and the New Testament. When Israel was unfaithful to God, he says this in 2, 2 Chronicles 28, 19, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been unfaithful to the Lord. In the Old Testament, Israel was the bride of God. It was the covenant he made. It was a marriage covenant. And when they broke that covenant, they suffered the consequences of that. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament also uses this picture of marriage about Jesus and the church. I'm just going to read this section out of Ephesians 2, 22 to 33. But you'll notice it talks about wives and husbands but right towards the end, it says, but the real purpose behind this is between Christ and the church. It says in 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because, sorry, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the church is the bride. When we abide in Jesus, we have a marriage covenant relationship. Can you imagine uh, pr most of us will be living in some form of family context? Those of us who aren't, we probably have friends or other connections that we're in close proximity with. Can you imagine if your household, family, or work relationships just functioned on rules? If there was no relational interaction, if it was just, here's the book of rules, take it, obey it, and that's it, you'd die. We need loving, nurturing relationships. And that's why marriage is so important, because marriage is the illustration of what a relationship with God is like. That's why in our communities, even if you talk to secular government officials, they will tell you that the backbone of any community are the families. 
You destroy the families, you destroy the backbone of what community is all about. And the devil has been doing a great deal of work in destroying that. But we come to this picture that God wants a relationship. He wants a relationship with us that is like a marriage covenant. It means that we give him time. It means that we listen, that we do, that we love. It means that we connect with God. It is a connected life. It's not five minutes here or there. It is us investing our lives into Jesus. And as we do that, he invests his life into us. So how do we do that? How do we connect with God in that way? Well, the Bible is full of instruction, as is Jesus and as are the apostles. I'm going to mention two steps. Step one is repentance. Repentance means to change one's mind. It is in the context that we acknowledge that our lives and our actions fall far short of God's standards. This falling short leads to a separation. We're told in Isaiah 53, it is our sins that separate us from God. Everything we do outside of a relationship with God goes wrong. Humanity's decision to reject God en masse has led to a corruption of our being. Isn't it interesting that with all of our technology, with all of our knowledge, we have so much knowledge, we have more books than we can fill libraries with. With all of that, with all of the advanced age we, lived it, we live in, we still cannot stop people being evil to one another. And people who say that, you know, I read something a while ago where somebody said they believe that, you know, on a bottom level, humans are good. And I think, man, you do not read the news. <laughs> I've been appalled this week what's come up in the news. Absolutely appalled. And some of the stuff I can't even read. I was reading uh, early this morning uh, in Africa, just the severe deprivation because of drought that is hitting the land. And bodies everywhere of people who are dying of starvation. And I look and I think it's part of the corruption of our humanity that we are evil to one another. Now, whether we like this or not, it means that this corruption, this rebellion needs to be acknowledged before God. The world that we live in, let me be really clear, the world that we see today is not the intention of God's world. When we pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we are acknowledging that the earth has gone far and wide away from how God intended it to be. And we need to apologize to God. We need to repent. And we also need to repent of the individual actions that we do that also help the destruction that is ongoing. The selfishness, the greed, the lying, all the things that humanity gets involved in, all of that needs to be repented of. Some people have often asked, well, God will just forgive. And I say, it doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. What we, what we fail to understand is that sin contaminates. And you can't just say, it's all good now. You have to make it all good. And making it all good, there is a cost involved. 
And the cost in making it good was Jesus Christ coming to die on the earth. That was the cost of making it good. If you spoke to the government and said, what is the cost of making the disease COVID good, they would say probably trillion pounds. That's how much has been invested in the vaccination, in the, the isolation, all the stuff that has gone in to allowing us to move about freely. That has cost a lot of money. It didn't just happen like that. And the cost of forgiveness is high. Did you know that where there is no sacrifice for sin, there is no forgiveness? You and I, we can go to someone and say, hey, I forgive you. But God can't do that. Because every bit of forgiveness requires payment. There is a payment for transgression that is required. And that payment is in Jesus. He took our punishment. It means that all of our wrongdoing can be forgiven, but only because of what Jesus has done. God's justice and his perfection demands payment. Think about it for a moment. That you are appointed as a judge in the United Kingdom. You're appointed judge. And when you go into that courtroom, you go with all the authority as a judge. And then you've got, okay, what is the next case? And in comes one of your family members. And they have done some awful thing. And you think, but they're my family member. I love them. I forgive them. But you cannot acquit them. You have to go through the process and say, this is your punishment. And that's what God has done. But what God has then done, he's taken off all of his authority. He's come down on earth and says, I'm now going to take your punishment and you are free to go. That is the cost of forgiveness that God has. And that is what makes Christianity unique. People don't like Christians saying that there is no other way uh, to God except through Jesus. The good news is, I'm not saying that. Jesus said it. Take it up with him. But here's the thing. There is no blood of Allah. There is no blood of Buddha. There is no blood of Shiva. There is no blood of any other religion. There is only the blood of Jesus, and it is only the blood of Jesus that removes sin. There is no other way. And so God's promise is that once we repent, once we turn away from sin, he will forgive us for the damage that we have caused and he will then make us a force for good in our world. You know, the church for many years has been one of the greatest humanitarian aids the world has seen. I was reading an article recently where people have, have cottoned on to giving a certain percentage of their income for good. I nearly wrote in the comments, yeah, the church has only been doing that for 2,000 years. Welcome to the train. You know, the church has been a forerunner. Why? Because God shows us how we are to live. Now, repentance is the first step and I'm going to say something here that might challenge you that opens the possibility of knowing God personally. Why am I saying it opens the possibility? Because there is a second step, and the second step is called following Jesus. And if all we do is repent, but we don't follow, we miss the relationship with Jesus. 
Now, I think this is due to the fact that in the last 150 years, we have miscommunicated the gospel. We have narrowed the gospel from following Jesus from repentance to forgiveness only. We've said in the last 150 years, all that matters is that your sins are forgiven. Well, I'm telling you, that is a mistake. Why is that a mistake? Because it leads to a distorted gospel and it leads to people who say, I'm forgiven, but I don't need to do anything else. I don't need to pursue a relationship with God. Some don't even want to. They are part of this group that we call Ticket to Heaven. And all they're interested in is not going to hell, but they don't want to know God. Now, I have to be honest here. I can't see the logic there. Yeah. Jesus, I want you to forgive all my sins so I don't go to hell. Now, if I don't go to hell, where do I go? I go to live with Jesus. Oh, hold on a minute. How does that work? You know, our relationship on earth with Jesus continues on into heaven. If people don't want to know Jesus here, they're certainly not going to enjoy heaven. So repentance is a doorway that opens a relationship to Jesus. And then Jesus says, come and see, come and follow and abide with me. The following Jesus is the relationship that is established. It's that marriage relationship. It's the natural next step. When somebody comes and says, I want to follow Jesus, and you pray them through a prayer of repentance, the very next step is, let me show you how to follow Jesus. And we can all do that. Why? Because hopefully we're all following Jesus. We will teach them how to read the Bible and how to pray and how to meditate on Scripture. We will teach them all those things. We will talk to them about baptism with the Spirit and baptism in water. But we're doing it in the context that you are following Jesus and developing a relationship with Jesus and you end up with a connected life that is full of power. I love reading the testimonies of people who say, well, once I was this, then I met Jesus, and now I am that. And that doesn't mean we all need to be in the limelight in public, but it means there is a transformation through Jesus that changes us. We walk with Jesus in daily life, not in a weekly life, not on a Sunday morning. We walk with him every day. We walk with him in the workplace. We walk with him in our family. We kind of become Enoch who walked with him every day. You know, the disciples, when Jesus said to them, follow me, he interacted with them. He did it on a daily basis. They observed what Jesus did. They asked him questions. Jesus challenged their behavior. When they were talking about how great they were and who was the greatest, Jesus said, hey guys, you see that child? If you're not like him, you can't be my disciples. I bet that blew the kind of ideas out their head. And Jesus did that consistently. Said to them, guys, you need to change. Now, the thing is, it's about spending time with Jesus. Let me read you something that I think is a brilliant example of what the relationship with Jesus should do. It's found in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. Now, when they, they are the Pharisees, so here we've got two disciples who are in front of the Pharisees for having done a miracle. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, 
and perceived that they were uneducated common men, put me in there, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So when people say to you, wow, why are you different? Say, it's just because I'm, I'm with Jesus. Oh. And when they meet somebody else, say, say what, what is it with you? Why are you different? Oh, I'm just with Jesus. And all of a sudden people think, well, he's different, and he's with Jesus, and she's different, and she's with Jesus, and they're different, and they're with Jesus. Maybe I need to get to know this Jesus guy. Because these people are all people I like. I love what they do. I love how they are. Maybe I need to do that. It's about being with Jesus. Little by little, day by day, we become like Jesus. The disciples started to do what Jesus did. They started to speak like Jesus. They started to think like Jesus. Now, here's the great news, that Jesus chose 12, and those 12 he was limited by because he was physically in a body, and you can't really do that with more than 12. But Jesus said, it is better for you that I go, because when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will dwell in you. And where Jesus on the earth was speaking to and changing 12 guys, now in the era that we are in, we have a Holy Spirit who is doing that with one billion people. I think that's amazing. I've often thought, oh, I wish Jesus was here in the flesh. And he says, no, don't wish that. Because I can only cover so many. But now, by him dwelling in you, I can meet with billions of people at the same time. I can speak to them and I can direct them. Now, there is a challenge. And the challenge is that the disciples could choose not to follow. I mean, Judas was one. He chose not to follow. How does that work for us? Well, it works for us in that we can say, well, I'm not going to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to develop that relationship with Jesus because really I just wanted forgiveness, but I want to live my life how I want to live it. I want to encourage you this morning that the life you dreamed about is the life that Jesus wants to give you. He's the only one who can do that. You know, I look at all the political shenanigans and things that are going on. The only thing that will change our nation are people who are like Jesus, who follow him, who do what he says. And so I want to encourage you this morning, give God time. The greatest act of love you can give to anybody is some of your time. Time is the currency of life. We spend it every day until it is all spent and then we stand before God. So that the most powerful gift you can give to anybody is your time. And I want to challenge you this morning, how much time do you really give to Jesus? I think this is an apt message because we're heading towards Jesus becoming a man, God's gift to us. And then we head into the new year and a new year is always a good time to relook at what we're doing and to say, how am I going to spend my time? And I want to encourage you to start thinking now, how much time are you going to give to Jesus? Here's a challenge. Now, I'm not expecting you to do it because it's quite difficult. But tithing is 10%. And we give 10% of our money, etc. What about if we gave 10% of our time? 
Now, I'm not saying we need to spend 10% sitting with Jesus, but 10% doing the things that Jesus wants us to do. You'll be amazed when you read the Bible, when you meditate on it, when you memorize scripture, when you start to invest in other people, that can take quite a bit of time. And so I want to encourage you. There is this connected life that Jesus wants to draw us to. I love the fact it says in the scripture we read that these were uneducated men. Hey, we've got more education in this church than in the whole of the disciples. We've had far more education. But it's not about that. It's about being connected to Jesus. I'm aware time is shot away and I've taken a bit longer than I intended to. But I want to encourage you, there is a life that has been offered by Jesus. And it is a life of power. It is a life of fulfillment. But it requires a marriage covenant that we make in our hearts. And say, Jesus, it's all yours. You know, what I really love is how the family unit that God has created actually demonstrates all of this. You know, when I was single, it was all about me. When I got married, well, it was about me and about my wife. When we had kids, it wasn't about me or my wife, it was just about the kids. And, and it's that kind of transition as you go through that it's about Jesus. It's about what he can do and wants to do through you. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we are friends of God. That you call us friends. We're not those who sit there with a bunch of rules, but Father, you call us into fellowship. And I want to pray for you this morning. Those of you that live in that fellowship May God continue to bless that in your life. I pray it would become ever more glorious. And those of us that are thinking, I really want that, but I don't feel that I'm there. Father, I want to pray that you would just show us what we need to do. Father, I pray that you would guide us, that into our hearts, into our minds, you would just sow the thoughts of what we need to do, whether it's more prayer or meditation on scripture, whatever we need to do, fellowship with believers. Father, would you show us? And I want to pray that as we come towards Christmas and recognize that Jesus is a gift, that we would walk in the goodness of that gift, that relationship of Jesus in our hearts. And so, Lord, bless your people, watch over your people, and help us through this week, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.